You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Okay, we're talking about drinking. When did you guys start drinking? I mean, not today, but like in general, because <laughs> we've already started uh, drinking. So the first time I was drunk was probably 15. Um, I say I didn't start like regularly drinking until probably 17, I would say. You were there the first time that I uh, found out that I couldn't regularly drink as much. So, Oh yeah, so was that the picture to, I sent you the picture. other day? Yeah. yeah. So that was that was my first experience of ah, my body has a limit. Yeah, um, that was that was a picture of Joe that sort of looking down <laughs> at what you'd produced, looking yeah. rather ashamed with yourself. It's like when a mother looks down at a newborn, <laughs> <laughs> except, except in the complete opposite way possible. Yeah, okay. Naked and covered in shit, <laughs> basically. Yeah. What about you, Nye? When did you start? Uh, what do you mean by do you mean by drinking like recreationally? going out with people medicinally <laughs> medicinally what do you mean like that first time you like had a bit of you know a glass of wine at sunday lunch or whatever well yeah but well i had like half a cider or whatever from a very early age like my parents tried to introduce me to right, yeah. alcohol or whatever like i you know when i was as soon as i could ask for it i would say like oh can i try a little bit of that and they give me a sip as soon know? as he could speak <laughs> vodka <laughs> Yeah, no. Really, um, give, us, give, give us a point of view on it. <laughs> no, no, but like, I would have like half a shandy or something at the age of like 12. Yeah. Uh, and if we went out to a restaurant at like 15, I'd have like half a lager. But I, I really didn't like the idea of drinking for quite a while. And I think it was that whole loss of control thing. I probably didn't drink till I was 18, like partying and stuff. Mm. And it, it would just be ciders and stuff. So yeah, I there's guess... also like a gateway element to it with alcoholic drinks where like obviously when you're younger and you have a bitter, it just tastes really bitter. Um, tastes like it, shit. Yeah, and yeah. as you get older, you sort of, you know, I don't know, your taste buds mature and you become less sort of sensitive to the bitterness or you have like a, a particular drink maybe like a really nice beer one day and it just really hits the spot. And from that on, you're just like, I, think oh, that's I true, get yeah. it. I think like, I think it is to get an older and taste buds changing, but I do believe that you just have to drink beer and hate it for a while. And then one yeah. day you're like, oh, I actually quite like this. this or you could refreshing. just go straight to like ready to drinks, like, you know, hooch. Yeah. And then you don't have to really have that problem. You, when you're a teenager and someone gives you like a, a, a WKD or a VK, mm. alcohol pops, you know, they're, they're basically designed for that. Alcohol is designed to taste as little as alcohol as possible whilst having the highest alcohol content you yeah. can get away with, with those constraints. But I do think the, the best tastes are acquired. Cheese and wine and stuff. Like it's all, the, the best tastes are difficult to get into. Ale isn't like something that I liked as a teenager, but now it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it, is, it is like a very nice sort of taste. I prefer... A, the right kind of ale to any sort of alcohol pop or anything really sweet how did you get into ale that's a good question i don't actually know um do you know what this is, i do actually agree with you joe a little bit here because i had to drink it for a while without liking it mm. but the reason i did is because i have this very um romantic notion of the pub samuel peeps said it was it's the heart of england or something Something, something completely uh, over, overblown like that. But yeah, I, I generally have that really romantic notion of the old pub, the place where the community gather. That's true. I think I have the same kind of thing with whiskey. Like similarly, I don't think anyone has their first whiskey and thinks, yeah, that's nice. They think that's fucking horrible and it's burning my throat. 
But like at the same time, I have this notion of like it's a very refined thing to do. Yeah, we had a mate, didn't we? You'd have like the fifty pound bottles. And Absolutely. We used to say we liked it, but then <laughs> then after you you do it like five times, like no, I do like it actually. You start to appreciate it more and more. You have a few, you hate it, and then you before you know it, you're having loads. Alcohol is technically addictive as well, but in like a different way to smoking. So my understanding is that smoking, you can get addicted to it actually quite fast. Whereas alcohol is only really a, an addictive issue if you become like an alcoholic and then you try and come off it. Because that's right. one of the few, it's one of the few things where withdrawal can actually kill you. I think it's right. like that heroin. Just the detox is too aggressive. Just the detox. Are you like lack some vitamins and stuff like doctors yeah. give you pills for it? Because you, your body won't produce it because it's got it from alcohol or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. We should ask you, Elliot, like, when did you start drinking? When did I start drinking? I hated it for so long. It was disgusting. Everything tasted like shit. I was like, why do people do this? <laughs> Drank a bottle of vodka, threw it all up, felt like shit, didn't drink for a year. And then, yeah, started going out, threw up every time I went out. Don't know why I did it, to be honest. It got, it got so, so horrible. Do you think it was like social pressure? Like, I think it's one it? of those things, isn't it? It's sort of... It get, everyone gets to a certain age where you don't hang out with someone by going to like a park and playing football and all that sort of shit. You go to a pub and have a pint. Yeah. Um, and then from there, end up going to a nightclub and just drinking endless amounts of things because that's what you think you do. Mm-hmm. And then dying on a sofa for two hours, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, eventually it, you do acquire it because I used to not be able to drink at all. It was like the, the worst thing. But now I do actually really enjoy it. But that sounds horrible. <laughs> it would be weird if you didn't like it, though, because you, you work in a bar. I know, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And I sort of fell into that originally by um, one of my mates had a job glass collecting right. and they needed someone else. And then from there, just ended up going through the ranks of everything. And yes. Yeah, it's sort of being in the atmosphere of it does help. It, well, yeah, it's, it's a drug that we're all kind of, it's mandatory to take it. Tradition almost, isn't it? Yeah. I've Everyone's s- drunk for so many years that it's, it's what you do when you get to a certain age. Because I, I try to take a very objective view of this kind of thing and, and especially you know, social pressures and things. But even I have a somewhat critical view of people that don't drink at all. That's interesting. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, why that? Um, people that are completely cold turkey. I don't know. I, I feel like, I think there's a spectrum of people that drink. So you have people that um, don't drink at all. You have people that have the odd glass of wine and don't really go beyond that you and then you have this sweet spot in the middle and i think controlled drinking is a very good thing to do i think it, it's kind of like a safety valve for stress and things because I, I don't think it's, it's realistic to expect people to be without any kinds of anxieties and stresses and things everyone needs a drink once in a while and it's it's a nice thing to do it's, it's not it's not this biggie but in in moderation i probably fall on the other side of this sweet spot I I, I'm, I probably do have more of a reliance on it than I would like to admit. But then I think that you, then you have your, your people who are very reliant on it. And then you, you have your people that are alcoholics. Chemically reliant on it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I feel like this this middle bit, it, it's like balancing virtues and vices. I mean, to counter that a bit, do you not think that there are perhaps more wholesome alternatives to um, for stress relief? than necessarily going out and drinking. Why, is, why does going out and drinking have to be the source of stress relief specifically? It doesn't. Like I said, I think there's, there are better ways to do it, but it, we're, you know, we're only human. 
do you think it's just because of the culture and everything? It's more yeah. ingrained social but, thing. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad way to relieve stress. If you do it in moderation and you, you're very informed about what you're doing, you're not binge drinking. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think having a few ales in a in a an old pub, there's there's no harm in it. And I, 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 yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is you're kind of playing around with the idea of of control. And I think you you to to give up a a slight sense of inhibition shows you're comfortable with doing that. And do, I think do you also think that I mean th- I'm guessing when you set when you're talking about the sweet spot you're not talking about are you including say being suspicious of people who have religious reasons not to drink or medical reasons not to drink or are they not part of this no, I, diagram? I, uh, me- medical less are so. They excused from that? Medical less I'm so. Suspicious <laughs> of them. No, I I I I am slightly suspicious of, of um not not like not really, but you know, it's it's, it's a it's a it's a joke, really. Like, well, when you say suspicious, like, would you not have to examine the reason they're not drinking? Because yeah, I find it really interesting. Like, I okay. I I don't. Yeah, I'm I'm joking. Like, I, I don't think they're like up to something. No. <laughs> it's just I I do find it very strange that they feel like any loss of inhibition would be a completely bad thing. It's like they don't sort of trust themselves. If that's the reason, I yeah, I'd kind of be inclined to agree. I mean, my my, my only the only my only experience with this is a, a friend of mine who didn't drink at all, complete teetotal. I think he listened to this podcast, and I yeah, I think I think he knows I'm suspicious <laughs> of of you know of why he doesn't want to lose yeah, that control. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we we talked about it at length because we we went to the pub a lot, and he would just be him watching me drink. Do you not think perhaps that's maybe over-analysis? Do you not think there may be other reasons why they're a bit afraid of... Um, I mean, some people are just kind of naturally worse drinkers. I mean, I don't I don't personally think that if you drink a lot and say you're a bit of a prick or become violent or whatever, that necessarily reflects on who you are as a person. Because, I mean, it, your inhibition centres, when they get shut down, they are, they are as much part of your personality and part of how you conduct yourself as anything else is. So when people say, well, you know, when you're drunk, that's when you truly are yourself, you're really yourself, is, is a bit, you know, I, I don't, I personally think that's a bit of a misnomer in the sense that it's, um, it's when you're affecting your brain that way, it's, it's just silly to say that it's just like a true self or something, because you are affecting so many different systems that it's, um, yeah, I agree. It's kind I of think, strange. I think because alcohol releases inhibitions and it sort of breaks down this kind of social barriers that you construct in your own mind, you're obviously going to speak more freely and you are going to be more yourself to a point. I think like if you get like really, really drunk, that can start to just, you can just start to make no sense because it just starts frying your brain effectively. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, yeah. it's, so it's not that... Um, with a pinch of salt. It's not that you that you can't imagine what the risks are of a certain action. It's that you don't care about the risks I think yeah. is, is the fundamental difference. A lot of people kind of mistake that with, with, when people get drunk. They're, they're fully aware. They can they can competently tell you the risks of a certain decision. They just don't care about the consequences anymore. Um, so that's obviously a big reason for why it can it can boost confidence. And um, more so, it's like they can't even cognitively conceive of the consequences. So suddenly, that skyscraper you want to climb becomes a really good idea <laughs> because the consequences are not like conceivable. In some sense, and I think for a at, lot at, of at people, a very extreme level, yeah. But I, I, yeah. I say if it's if it's public speaking, for instance. So you, um, I mean, I, I, I do this to be honest. So you have a couple of beers before you go up and make a big speech. We're doing that right now. Terrible. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, yeah, I think you can still cognitively be. Oh well, I could, I could get it wrong. I could say the wrong thing. I could completely. But you no longer care about doing that. I, I yeah, I think at the very extreme end, you can't 
conceive of the risk, the, the, the downfall. Mm. But I, th- I think generally, which if you're in that sweet spot, you're more likely to succeed, I think. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think definitely the alcohol level or, you know, the amount, the amount of drunkenness does influence exactly where you are on the spectrum of like, are you just completely out of control or are you just being a less inhibited version of yourself? Mm. I'm unbeatable at pool after a couple of pints. But it, it is a couple, two more, and I'm just nah. What's that Mitchell and Webb <laughs> sketch? Yeah, it's uh, like um, it's three. Is it two thirds of a pint? Well, no, no, it's a it, pint it, in a it's half. Sli- or slightly less than two drinks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you finish your second pint, it's all downhill from yeah. there. But you're you're invincible um, <laughs> up until that point. Yeah, that's that's purely based in reality. You don't write that sketch from pure fiction. That's why they you know. they stopped them drinking in sneaker matches, didn't they? They're only like water now. I mean, is that, is that actually like a genuine reason they just thought well no, no, no but as it well I mean like as in it could I, be, I know the, yeah I mean they're but, so like like stingy with rules and everything in the snooker tournaments aren't they yeah. I don't know if it's like because they're generally like well yeah, we don't want any of the players being overconfident they could be you know they could or, put anything it could be like oh we've got a beer but it could also not be a beer it could be performance enhancing drinks or whatever <laughs> <laughs> somehow you know our sciences for Paul like, yeah um, yeah but I'd think they do it because people react differently to alcohol. But if they're both on water, then there's no handicap. Yeah. Or I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's a bit strange. So if you think about it, like if if you know if someone wants to handicap themselves, you can kind of yeah. think, you know, well, you know, let be. But yeah, you obviously, don't, you know, yeah. snooker people are like I can't remember what they call the body people who organise snooker stuff. I just know that they're, they're famously really strict over yeah. everything. Yeah, like I remember. I, is Ronnie O'Sullivan I think is his name like one of the more sort of yeah. well known I don't know if you follow Paul I don't really but I just like no, I know that guy yeah, yeah, for a no, start. I know that guy that's, that's not Paul it's snooker yes you're right see there you go I don't know anything <laughs> I'm thinking about snooker yes but yeah in, and in snooker like I think I think at one point he like removed his shoes or something in a tournament and he got like so much shit from it from the he got like a massive fine and everything for just like taking his shoes off for a while because they were irritating his feet like, you cannot remove your shoes during a game of snooker like it was yeah quite like Ronnie O'Sullivan he's a bit of a rebel yeah they offered like a 10 grand cash prize or something if he could do a 147 mm-hmm. he was like I could do it but it's not enough yeah <laughs> what a lad yeah where it's and the, yeah and he got like in real big trouble for this but 147 is like when you it's basically like a perfect game where yeah, you just yeah. like pot all of them in one yeah and um, essentially, he had the final ball to pot, and then he went. This is this is considered extremely scandalous and cheeky in uh, in snooker. And he went he went to the referee and he went, "What's the actual What's the prize for doing the one four seven? And and he told he told him, and he just went, "That's not enough," and didn't do it, and just deliberately. <laughs> just it, left and it. This was considered like the, one of the greatest scandals in snooker history. Well, I was talking about the um, my romanticization of the pub. Am I alone in this? Does everyone else kind of like pubs? They're nice. No, I agree. Yeah. They are like, especially you find like a really nice, quirky little country pub. You sit in and they've just got all sorts of random drinks and the food's always really nice. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you go to a restaurant, it's like super hustle and bustle. But if you go to like a quiet country pub, it's the food's sometimes better. And, you know, it's nice and quiet and you can actually, it's a lot more relaxed. Almost like sitting in a lounge, you know, when you're at home in like a really comfy lounge with a fire on yeah it's always nicer than when you're sat in an office or something yeah yeah no i i that's that's a large part of the reason why i like pubs but even if they're not relaxing mm. if they're if they're pretty busy i mean i can't remember the last time i was in an actual traditional pub that was busy not since like 2007 with like the smoking ban mm. for me pubs represent a part of history and 
I'm not because I'm not a very nationalistic kind of person, but I do kind of like that part of cultural identity that we have the the, the English pub. What else have we got? Like Maypoles, <laughs> fucking Maypoles and Morris Dancers. Is a big part of the national identity. Like British drinking culture is, I would go as far as like, unparalleled around the globe. Mm. Like, <laughs> I mean, you go to any other country in Europe, and they typically serve like half pints. That's kind of like the standard. Lightweights. Yeah, but then they're all smoking. Like, and like, there's not really smoking bans in a lot of those places. Mm. And the smoking culture, for want of a better phrase, is like very prevalent. Those countries, but you come to the UK and it's like, it's just the amount of drinking. Yeah. The phrase going out for a drink means something very different in the UK than if you were to mm. say it, I don't know, in the US, for example, that would probably be interpreted as a literal like beer or whatever they fucking drink. I don't know. Well, the, yeah, I mean, it almost might have like more depressive qualities to go out for a drink for no reason. Whereas in the yeah. UK, it's like if you're going out for a drink, you're like, I'm going to go see my mates, I'm going to play some darts, I'm going to go hang it's, out. It's with, the go to kind of thing, isn't it? When you're like, get to an age where you're allowed into pubs and things and you want something to do in the evening, it's like, I'll just go to the pub. Yeah, well, back in it's the day, what you do. You know, you'd have skittle teams, you'd have darts teams, all these, you know, the community would revolve around these places. To risk pulling out some statistics on pubs. Here we go. So, one of the reasons why drinking culture is so prevalent, or at least going down to the pub and all that sort of thing in the UK, um, I mean, for one, is the sheer number of pubs that we at least used to have, and a lot, a lot of them are sort of disappearing or becoming gastro pubs, as they're called, or, hmm. um, you know, restaurant slash pubs or whatever. Well, I read it was one every 12 hours closes. Oh, wow. But that's... It's insane when you think about it. How, how, how much was that a year? We worked it out, didn't we? Yeah, it was like, can't be 720 right. a year. Yeah. But we, I mean... We might, it might, because I, I mean, a 1577 census, to bring out some numbers, <laughs> there was one pub for every 187 people in England and Wales. That is a lot of pubs that's, per capita. Well, you couldn't fit them all in at the same time, and I'd say that's a problem. There would be more pubs. <laughs> yeah. Let's have a look. So what was the other thing I wanted to say? I don't remember. But, but it doesn't matter. Because... <laughs> because? Because one of the big reasons why there's a huge number of pubs now is back in um, 1830, there was an 1830 act which basically meant that people could just sell alcohol basically out of their house. It was, it was what was called a beer house because there was so much demand for people to like go and drink beer and whatever. They just went, oh, hell, you can, you know, if you can get a really, really easy license, you can just sell it as if you're a pub from your house. Um, and this was called a beer house and these were like very informal sort of places. And some, pe- some of them ended up becoming much more like pubs in the sense they would actually start getting tables and they would make very lucrative businesses out of it. Um, but the amount of inflation in terms of the number of pubs was just insane during this period because everyone was opening a pub. This is actually one of the reasons why now many modern pubs are like just terraced houses in the middle of streets and things in marketplaces because many of them used to be beer houses. And when the Beer uh, House uh, Act was repealed, because there was just so so many of them popping up, basically they went, oh, hang on, we've got to restrict this, but you can still sort of apply for a licence to become a proper pub. And many of the beer houses transitioned into being a, becoming a proper pub because they had sort of really set up um, a business like that um, but that did that did reduce the number of pubs that were being opened there was still a huge number of uh, pubs from that whole sort of expansion thing that that can definitely be responsible partly why the UK has so many pubs open it's harder to find a, a pub older than sort of 17th 18th century have you ever been to that really really old one in Nottingham it's supposed to be the oldest pub in Britain it's basically a cave I'm guessing you have <laughs> yeah it's a cave bit, what's it called <laughs> Ye old trip to Jerusalem? No, I think I'd remember that. All right, it's, it's in a it's a cave basically built into the side of a castle the, where the, the fortifications. How old is that pub then? 
14th century, 13th century, wow. sort of. Yeah. It's, Has it always been a pub? may even be older, actually. Uh, yeah, it's, really? it's pretty much always been a pub. Um, Surely it would have been like, like a Traveller's Inn or something, you know, like an well, alehouse or yeah, something like that. This is the problem. It's like... Yeah, what is a pub? You know? Yeah, it's a pub the same as like, a, like an old coaching station or mm. yeah, a tavern or whatever. I would say for simplicity's sake, yes. yes. <laughs> if it's a place where people gather and had drinks, it's basically the yeah. ordinary pub. So we call a lot of places pubs now, but they're different. You know, we're, mm. they're more in line with bars. It's like... Right. So I think I've mentioned this before. The, the whole decline in pubs thing, a lot of people like blame the smoking ban or the fact that people don't want to go out anymore. I kind of think it might be a good thing um, because it, be, it... I mean, I think it's also to do with better standards. And I don't think there's a place for like a dodgy pub doesn't clean their lines and doesn't really... I don't know. I, I, do, I do like the idea of going to a pub and earning your way in there. I like to have some sort of familiarity with, you know, know someone that works there or know one of the regulars or should feel like it's part of you as much as, you know what I mean? To, to have sort of a way yeah. into that community because it's more than just a place to go to drink. Bars are different, but I, I think with yeah. a pub, I think I like to have some sense of, but I, I feel like that has to be earned. I feel like you have to go into a place and these people that sort of look at you funny when you walk into a pub, I don't really mind that because I look pretty funny. It's like when you first started trying to drink beer, you hated it. When you first start going to a pubs, no one wants you there. Yeah. And eventually, everyone acquires everyone. You become a geezer. And here we like, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it really is sort of their place, these regulars. Mm. Um, and I, I don't necessarily mind that, so long as you're not made to feel unwelcome. Do you hear about um, one of the pubs around, I think it was the Beehive or something? Um, the landlord barred all of the regulars. Why? It's a bunch of old mm. old farts. Um, and they were scaring off all the new people. <laughs> Um, so apparently, yeah, he just went, sorry guys, he's not allowed in anymore because they were being dickheads and sort of claiming the pub, like proper locals mm. only sort of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, that can be and, a problem. And it's picked up like massively since then. Was was he trying to oh. diversify? In the sense yeah. That, yeah, yeah, he was basically. trying to, you know, get new people in because eventually you're going to have like 90 year olds in there and nobody else. But you mm. want to, if you want your pub to run, you need new people coming through. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I think this, I imagine they were a bit pissed off. They're like, "But we've been coming here for years. No, nope. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, there, I don't like a, you anymore." <laughs> there's definitely a balance with these things, but I feel like a lot of pubs that won't adapt at all, on the other hand, are just yeah. That's that's it's economical insanity these days, unfortunately, because the, yeah. the age of um, people who drink a lot um, is older and older. Um, yeah, I mean, not only that, but I think now I think twenty percent of students are completely teetotal now. Uh, it is really yeah. big like um, and it's increasing so, like long. one of the pe- person that works with me is Tito and he works in a bar yeah and he's mm-hmm. like yeah I don't drink I was like surely not yeah but I remember it's, I remember. Oh, it's 25% actually I just got this it's, it's, looked, yeah it's 25% yeah, like um, Tito like complete so yeah yeah. But that, I mean that's a census so it's you know read into that how much I'm trying to think of like a friendship group at uni but I guess like maybe those people kind of group together and you just yeah, of a people who probably hang out it's, it's going to be a lot of like people you know on computers playing video games all day probably like me when I was at uni <laughs> yeah. so you know it's interesting though because um, there was a um, I'm going to try and quote a BBC article that I saw ages ago and probably get all the numbers wrong but I'm going to do it anyway um, I think it was something like the average so this is like UK nationwide average spend on a night out it's gone up to £70 something mm-hmm. like that but it's a lot like fewer times over the year that people go out Obviously, London's going to tip that quite a bit, right? But it's going to seem to be suggesting like a trend towards people are kind of not going out and getting smashed all the time, but like when they are, they're like making the most of it. 
So in in the sense of like less frequent but more like bingy. More like yeah. So the seventy pound figure I should stress in, included like like food and drinks, taxis, okay, so and taxis right, and stuff. Okay, so that's so not it's like more just pure alcohol. Ganging on the door. Right. So it's not necessarily binging, but it's more making the most of your evening. And right. but you're doing it kind of less often. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a reflection of the fact that there's less places to go or people are feeling the pinch on their wallets more, right. I'm not sure. I used, to, um, I used to work in a nightclub in town. Um, and that makes no sense because pay week on Saturday would be twice as busy as any other day throughout the month. Yeah. So you get, yeah. you know, maybe people don't have enough money to do it because drinks are obviously, the prices always go up. But pay week, Saturday night, was guaranteed to be horrendous. Um, and it's just the way, it's like um, race week. All the Irish that come over will save up all year to come over. And it's like the only thing they do. When when there's like a race on with all the horses going around things and yeah, and it's <laughs> everyone piles. Oh, you sound like shop. an expert it's, on this. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's insanity though because um, even police and fire services allow for a ten percent over capacity or something. Don't know if I should say that, but it's right. like a legit thing where they yeah, let you no, get away with that. being too busy. I know they do that in uh, venues for music as well. Yeah, there's like a, obviously there's a capacity limit on certain venues. Yeah, but, but they do. You, you, there's a bit of a. They yeah. don't. They don't care because they know mm. it, it brings in so much trade. Yeah. And... Well, I think I mentioned in the sport podcast, uh, not the pub I work at, but the other one was uh, one of the football games, one of the big ones. And all the fans got off the bus, and they were like climbing on the balconies and like throwing, right. throwing shit down. And yeah, it, it's absolutely mental. Big events will get people drinking. I don't know. I I think it's better to drink little and often than that. You know what I mean? Like to blow all your shit in one go. And because if you're spending seventy pounds, you're gonna get smashed. You know what I mean? Most likely. Shots. I mean, well, I mean, if you were going out in like Soho or somewhere, seventy pounds is probably just like oh yeah, of course, of course, yeah, in London. But so part of the article is that total spend is down like over time, which suggested that people are grouping into these kind of, they're just, you know, looking forward to one particular night, maybe of the month or every two weeks rather than going out like. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Like the people that go out every weekend and it's like a routine, it's like drilled into their brain. Oh, I'm going to go to these yeah. two pubs, maybe even just the one pub and just piss all my money at the wall. Uh, you know, I, I, it's very sort of it's like Pavlovian, isn't it? Just. Let's, let's do the thing yeah. we always do. Yeah, Routines are fine, but you've got to break that routine sometimes. I mean, well, each to their own, but I get bored of that pretty fast. If I was doing the same shit, like, go if, to the same two yeah. places every weekend. If like, my if my recreation fair. becomes routine, it's like, oh, you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. recreation shouldn't really be routine. If you guys had to guess which age group is least likely to drink, as in drink like regularly or a lot. Is it the under fives? Boomers. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, this is, we're talking 16 and older here. Uh, legal drinking age over. Who, who do you think is our least likely to drink? Least likely to. Yeah. Oh, see, see, it's because I work at the uni, I know a lot of students don't drink anymore. You know, granted, they still do, but they'll drink in their rooms maybe. Yeah. They don't come to pubs as much. But the teetotal figure of young people, it's like you kind of want to say young people. Yeah, that's because, a quarter, sure. Yeah, it is happening a lot less. If you go out to a bar in town, everyone's sort of over twenties easily. Most of them are like higher end of that. Yeah. So it's it's no. got to be sort of sixteen to. Yeah, you're absolutely 18, correct. It's sixteen to twenty four is the yeah. smallest amount of drinking, and also the other 
big myth that I've always found really interesting, if some people don't know this, is, is in terms of economic class as well, the people who are far more likely to drink are people earning 40k or above a year, so it's in the sort of higher economic class. They're far more likely to one, binge drink, and also far more likely to drink very regularly, whereas people in earning 10k or less are actually far less likely to drink much. Can't afford it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, and it's A lot of it is, yeah, just like that sort of drinking culture thing. Yeah, I think it's 80% of people earning 40k plus drink regularly, whereas 47% earning under 10k drink. Um, with also, you know, <laughs> no, what have you been doing to these beers? Like, oh, I walked them in a bag. Sorry, <laughs> no, I was just rudely interrupted by like the eruption of the Carlsberg. No, to be fair, I had it. finished like yeah. the interesting part of that. Mm. Do you want another statistic? Yeah, on, <laughs> should, I just, should I just drop on this? Might not make God. the edit, but the uh, the national average of teetotals in the UK now is about twenty percent. Um, that's the national average. So there's about one, uh, about a fifth of all people in the UK that now. That surprised me. At all. Yeah. In, so a place like London, I think the pub tray has been hit because of multiculturalism, because a lot of religious people don't drink. And there's a lot more religious people living there than than have been historically in a lot of different religions that prohibit alcohol. Uh, I think that's probably a factor. It just seems very strange that a lot of students don't drink. Kind of makes me wonder why. I think... I think don't like the taste. They haven't acquired it. Yeah. They're still waiting. It seems it's almost like a rite of passage. Like two beers behind. It's not exactly a good thing. And I, like I largely avoided it. You know, <coughs> I think I think at some point we all have to sort of be in a field face down, chundering. My actual first freshers week was I'd say relatively tame. Like there wasn't a night that I got blackout drunk. But then like you meet particular people, some of which I'm still very good friends with, and sort of depending on their disposition towards drinking that can like really affect and it's the social factor again mm. like i've got a mate i'm still very good friends with from uni and we just encourage each other and it's so bad like you just look at each other and it's like yeah let's go for a pint and then it's never yeah. one pint it's always like many pints but it's definitely a thing like i think the kind of friendship groups that you fall in with a few different encounters a few different flaps the butterfly's wing or whatever that analogy is and yeah when i said i didn't go to freshers um i wish i had it's a learning curve and even if i had like got too drunk or spent too much money you you learn from it and you you meet more people i mean there's a reason why people drink when they meet people i mean you wouldn't exactly sit and chat with somebody for more than two hours without alcohol in like a cafe you see this is the interesting thing it's like because i had quite a different experience i wonder if this has something to do with it but my a lot of the time I spent at uni playing video games, like especially my first year, I was just literally just played games like all day on my. I just sat on my computer all day, like wasting my life away. But what I ended up doing was I actually met a lot of people just like playing games and online and whatever, and that ended up actually becoming a bit of a social community, just like people on uh, Mumble or Discord or whatever the hell I was on at that time. And you just like have this little community of people, and you're all just like playing games and whatever and stuff like that. And that actually ended up becoming that sort of social um, right, yeah. existence for me more so than going out and drinking. And I, I do wonder if more and more people are just kind of like staying in their rooms and like playing games. Or yeah. you what, meet people on the on. internet now, don't you? You don't go to the yeah. pub for a pint. You go on social media yeah. and search for people that you like rather than sitting and chatting to them and finding out. And I wouldn't say it's better. Like I, I you it's know, just a I, new I way, think, isn't it? I think you get much more wholesome friends from going to like societies or whatever. You know, I still make like good friendships, but I've you know I've ended up like going to going to events and things with these guys, with a lot of these guys, and you know, it's just um, you actually you become real life friends and all that sort of thing. But for for a lot of it, you don't have that actual like physical contact with people, which does make a big difference. I think 
Yeah, I'm not sure if this kind of relates, but I think there's an older idea of the way people would um, kind of have dialogue with each other and talk through ideas. I think the pub was a place where that would be done. And I think now that that's done predominantly on the internet and people aren't so open about having conversations about big ideas and, you know, politics and news in the pub, or if they are, it's kind of antiquated and it's older people doing it. I feel like people are less cautious with the kinds of opinions they create and the way that they express them. I feel like on the internet, a lot of people are very, you know, I think we touched on this in the conspiracy theory podcast, but it's like people are, you know, all too quick to judge and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think when you have that interaction face to face and you meet different kinds of people down the pub, it's not necessarily people like you, you meet a, a wider range of people. Uh, it, goes, yeah, it goes broadly under this word called de-individualization, which right. is the word you use when essentially your individual identity or your identity as a person um, is not present when you're you know, interacting with people. And like so, with the internet and with places like this, people become de-individualized because what they're doing is they're interacting anonymously. So there's less of that human element. There's less of that um, interaction where you're you know you're actually confronting another human being and telling them they're an idiot or whatever other thing people do on the internet. You know, because when it's unless it's your actual identity that's in. Um, on on the line, it's there's very little incentive to really structure your thoughts or try mm. to. It's often what it motivates you to react to things or have the choice to um, respond to, um, like a tweet or a YouTube video, whatever it is, um, will often be anger or some kind of like you know, extreme reaction to it. That's often where you're going to get the the people on the edge of the bell curve who are the most aggressive, mm. the most likely to respond, and that's where you get these like weird amounts of uh, strange response or like over aggressive or whatever responses. Um, and also, you know, I don't know, I haven't listened to your conspiracy theory podcast because it hasn't come out yet, but um, I assume that's also where you get a lot of the conspiracy theory communities. It's like when you have areas of social populations where you can accommodate extreme parts of the bell curve, they will tend to, you know, flood together, won't they? But so it's, yes. And so suddenly it looks overrepresented because you've got this overrepresentation of um, yeah, yeah. a certain niche group. Yeah, we, <laughs> we did mention about the whole echo chamber thing. Yeah, and the loud, the loudest voices come to the fore. Right, exactly. Easy, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The interesting thing about echo chambers is, um, especially with like filter bubbles. I was doing a bit of research into filter bubbles as a thing, and it's it's, it's very unclear whether they actually exist or not. And this is still really? very, yeah. This is still very much. So I'm bringing this up because I don't know if you mentioned on the podcast. So I, if you brought up filter bubbles, whether it's, oh, it's, it's follow up yeah. to a podcast that hasn't even come out. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> bonus content. But yeah, no, I do I do want to sort of mention that that is actually quite. Uh, a contested thing but it's it's difficult because a lot of the, a lot of the more modern research especially i looked at some meta-analyses for um filter bubble um research and things like this and a lot of well the original conception of where filter bubbles came from was i think it's called ellie per pereza or something he did like a ted talk and that sort of thing and he just went well look google does this no and that's then... about three times now you've only hit me in the face <laughs> fuck the gesticulation yeah. <laughs> just getting too extreme getting extreme twatting um, microphones this way connor that way christ yeah who knows I knew I shouldn't have sat next to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got Nye like wound up and spitting fire. Still stand back. <laughs> oh, <shit>. uh, <laughs> what are we talking about? Let's get back on topic. How often do you guys drink? Like, it, it's a regular thing, isn't it? For all of us, I'd say. I think, I think you drink the least out of all of us now. Yeah. I only drink when I see you guys, and even then it's not that often when I see you guys. One, because I'm driving into a place, so I have to drive back. 
So that's one reason why I don't drink. And yeah, five two, and drive, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and two because I don't actually like it that much. Like I, I like a, a mild amount of drinking. I do enjoy that, but after a while, it becomes a, one a bit of a financial burden, and two, um, it's just I don't have that many necessarily chances to do it. And even if I did, I wouldn't want to make it a really regular thing. I want it to be an occasional thing. A bit like you were saying, Joe, with more people doing like very yeah. occasional, making it more special. That's kind of what I'm inclined to do. Yeah, I, I generally won't have uh, many unless it's more of an occasion. Um, I don't drink on my own and I don't really... I, it's more like I'll have one after work. Didn't uh, you Didn't you add up the amount of like beers and things you have after work? You are you are like technically an alcoholic. Right? Yes, I am yeah. aware. But in, in number of units you consume per week because of obviously the, the social thing of like after work. You know. But it is it is generally just one. It's one after work at like three in the morning. You know, I, and I all I'm going to do straight after that is go and sleep. You know, I'm not I'm not using it to function in in that sense. Um, where it gets probably well more worrying is is like. When I do the open mic, I'll probably have three before I go on because I, you know, and, and the podcasting as well. I, I do usually drink in the podcast, not all of them, but um, some of them I'll have, you know, I'll have a couple during. Um, and it's just more and more of these social occasions where they all kind of pile up. But like I said, I think perfect drinking, if, there's, if there is such a thing, where it deviates away from reliance and more into recreation. But it's very difficult to tell when you're... But do you not, not think that just in and of itself, the amount of volume or the amount of alcohol you're consuming in and of itself can still be a problem? I feel like this is for an, medical reasons. This is an intervention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Um, I know. I totally agree. Yeah. And I. And I, I even, like even I said, if the context is right, even if it's a social context, a wholesome context, still, if it's still too much, you yeah. So that that's you know, that sweet spot be. I was talking about. I think. Um, so that, yeah, sure. It's a, it's a principled sort of, um, it's almost an existential look at. Um, you know the way you're approaching social situations you know affirming yourself and you know trying to solve anxieties without you know needing to medicate them and you know trying to get to the root of the problem it's all about intention it's all about why you're drinking and how you're managing anxieties and things but then yeah of course yeah it, it is also about the amount as well it's just, just qualitative quantitatively sorry just yeah and I, I think i think perfect drinking is also sparse throughout the week you know a, a glass of wine with a, with one of your lunches and then a couple of drinks on the weekend sort of thing. Yeah. But see, the, th the thing is, I don't even... I think that actually drinking too regularly is also quite damaging, even if it's not that much. The problem is, like, if you're if you're not giving your liver or whatever else a bit of, like, space, like a reasonable amount of space, like a week or so, to, like, just clean things out, to have a bit of a thing, then it, in, in a way, I think drinking over time, uh, say, so having, like, a beer every other day or whatever, is more of a compounding problem than say having you know a, well, i mean binge drinking is really bad so if you're having a huge amount but i mean like in terms of say leaving maybe a gap of a week or two and then having like you know some a reasonable amount of alcohol in a week yeah i'm, I'm, I'm better than having like constant alcohol yeah so i i've i've married, I've, i don't really get um the thing that most i have is about six like i, I i've gone in the days where i have like 20 hmm. uh, <laughs> christ i can't remember the last time i was like properly drunk I don't because I, I don't enjoy that aspect, but I do enjoy you know, tasting different ales. Or I do agree. With it. I'm in a very difficult space, having been working in a bar, being around a drink. Like I said, it's the only drug that's sort kind of, of get sucked into it. Don't you? Yeah, it's mandatory to, to take it. It's, it's a lot um, of the people that you know do just hang out in pubs. So you're sort of to see them, mm. you're more than likely be in a pub. It doesn't help when you uh, sell a pound a shot. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's or funny because like there's this argument that if alcohol was just hypothetically not a thing and like right now today it was introduced to society by discovery or whatever, it would never be legalized. And you can sort of see why because yeah. it's the worst drug. Yeah, there's so much evidence for it being well. It is it is unhealthy ultimately. Like okay, in moderation maybe not, but anything the the amount most people drink is bad for you. Like full stop. Like it's something that people don't want to confront. Yeah. But there's there's five hundred eighty thousand dependent drinkers in the UK alone who are right. like reliant on it. You know, that's I mean, if you that's what like one point one point four percent or something of the uh topics of like 70 million people in the uk or something so it's like you know around one percentage of people are actually reliant on alcohol That's scary um, i mean it is like it is quite a potent drug really like mm. you know <laughs> anyone who's been drunk will know like that that's severely affecting you like psychologically and physically as well like it's, it's impairing your mental state a lot it's, you know there are there are things like i don't know like codeine for example that doesn't do that doesn't do anything near to your mind what alcohol will do but that's yeah. like prescription only that's all locked down but because alcohol's yeah. so like i don't know if that's a great comparison but my point is that it's culture because alcohol great. is so embedded in the culture and it's frankly making the government a lot of money like it's mm-hmm. not something that's going to be switched off well there are there are pretty much every other drug has has uses medicinally and and you know certain things well, can, might have uses that we haven't discovered yet yeah. because they're so taboo yeah. to research but there's there's there are drugs that can you know treat ptsd alcohol can't do anything like that it doesn't mm. it's it's got no positive qualities it's just fucking yeah it's just it's just okay, shit it's literally a depressant isn't it if you have yeah. to categorize yeah. it scientifically mm. it's in the same category as like, heroin yeah. <laughs> i mean one of the i mean one of the issues of uh, the idea of even trying i mean we can look at the one example we have of a western nation that created a prohibition on alcohol if we look at the u.s there was a prohibition on alcohol between 1920 and 1933 which was when federally banned it because of a sort of there was a big protestant influence in the prohibition of alcohol um and it ended up becoming as many people sort of know like a very underground sort of crime oriented well it was yeah, the well, mobs basically ended rates. up making a huge amount of money off of speakeasies and places where you'd go secretly to consume alcohol and so it didn't it ended up getting repealed one reason because it was unfortunate it, it didn't really make a difference because people would still go consume alcohol it's just all it did was fund you know, it's more that um, something that people were more or less enjoying responsibly on the whole was taken away. It's it's like it's puritanical. It's it's people saying we know what's best for you, and that obviously drove otherwise compliant, normal, kind citizens to crime. And it, obviously, it, the, the destruction seen in the prohibition was akin to the the Civil War. It was it was an awful period. American history when you really think about the, the statistics of the crime being committed. Yeah. Although, interestingly enough, liver cirrhosis went down. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did, yeah. So, so my, I think I guess my point there is, is banning it is not the answer because alcohol is all about control and about respon- uh, taking responsibility for your actions and about willfully giving up control to invite a little bit of chaos, which I think, like I said, if you're in the sweet spot, I think, and you're, you are a very in-control person, I think that can be a nice little exercise to invite, a nice little just to relax. I'm not on about I'm on about like five drinks or less in a, in, a, in the right setting. Not like oh, I'm gonna fucking piss all my money at the wall, go and get a kebab after eighteen Jaeger bombs. So that's I feel yeah. like you're talking about my life, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that there's any practical means 
uh, of trying to reduce the amount of binge drinking or dangerous alcohol consumption in the sense of not only health but also the the problem that it creates the burden it creates for the for the nhs um, or do you think it's just something that has to happen culturally in the sense that we have to get to a place where we're all more sensible drinkers so that we're not we sort of self-regulate to a, to an extent self-regulation and, and um, temperance um, are virtues that need to come through agency not it's not the role of the state to tell you to be more responsible with your own body and decisions i i feel so the latter yeah i I'm, i even take issue with things like seatbelt laws if it's just you in the car it's just very weird that the state's going look don't die well what i would say is to to play the more the other side of the coin a bit is yeah. well when it's at such minimal cost to the person having to put the seatbelt on as in it's like you literally just pull a thing across your body and just that's fine. You just sit there in the car. And exactly. what that actually does from a from a macro perspective, though, is it helps reduce the number of accidents that happen on the road, which can not not only involve yourself. If yeah, you're in a car accident, you could be killing. I'm not. Else. I'm not disputing the um, figures. Yeah, as well. But it's, you know, yeah, but you I mean, can't kill yourself. Yeah, by not yeah, wearing I, guess it, yeah. I guess you're not going to fly it's, through the window. And it's like, a choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> Superman. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, fly I, through the windshield. The minute and I said that, it's like, hang on, yeah, that's actually not going to like. You're not becoming a human missile, isn't necessarily going to. It might have happened. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Like that. One death could have been prevented, but um, I mean, it's like when you, when it's like a, almost like a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? Do you think that maybe? Um, no, if, I, I think it's know, the principle. I'm not disputing the facts. Mm. Um, I I think it is the principle. It's not the role of the state. Like making suicide illegal, it's just like well, that's not that's not the role of the state here because that suicide ultimately. I mean, it does affect other people. Well, besides, it is illegal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and, that's, and that's why I... Oh, I see what Yeah, it's, it's utterly bizarre to me that it is illegal. It assisted dying and things. This is the person taking responsibility for their own actions and safety. And that, should, that shouldn't need the state, really. That's a whole other, like, thing, though, because, like, if you throw yourself in front of a train... Ah, oh, very difficult subject we're getting into now, but, like, I'd say that's going to affect other people one way or another. Yes, it is, yeah. When, so when you look at, like, um, voluntary euthanasia, that's kind of, like, personally, I think, like basically fine to do because i mean there are very few it's viable not, arguments against it yeah and it's not like it's not apart from upsetting your loved ones perhaps if you mm. have a viable reason to do so like it's usually like terminal illness or chronic pain or whatever it's kind of fine yeah. like, so as long as there are safeguards in place so mm. so to make sure yeah. that so there's a team of doctors that look over the preside over this the case in question yeah um lawyers as well family and friends and that yeah. they all decide whether it is actually informed agency that is behind the decision, so that, that they're aware of the, the risks. And also, I think it's important to rule out all the alternatives first as well. But so long as those criteria are met, it's on the person. Hmm. But did you not think, well, I mean, this is not even to do with assisted dying, but this moving sort of more into purely suicide. If you think about it in terms of, say, it's kind of a non-law, right? Because you can't you know, convict well, someone for killing themselves because they're dead. So you have this you have this weird thing where it's almost like a weird sort of disincentive thing or something that kind of goes yeah you really shouldn't do it because if you you know because if you jump into you'll a train die, that, you'll that, die a criminal because yeah but or, or you'll massively inconvenience a lot of people if you do a, a public suicide or something that's quite you know it, it might create public unrest in the sense I'm, yeah, maybe pretty, that's the traditional reason but yeah but I'm pretty sure that's um, covered by other laws and things and and again common sense but not everything needs a needs to be taken to, yeah. le, to legality straight away right but i mean it's like it's kind of almost you know maybe it's a non-law anyway it's just more that what we worry about is more the assisted dying laws and things like this which we need serious attention it'd be very weird if the police like burst down a door see a guy hanging from a noose and shoot him 
to stop him from immediately like get the handcuffs out (laughs) (laughs) and put money on like that's happened in america before (laughs) like i would not be at all surprised if they tried to stop someone committing suicide by (laughs) only if he's very zealous and he thinks that suicide is a sin um which it is, and or he's a suicide bomber, and then trying to dis- oh, yeah, stop him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's different. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, I don't believe it's the role of the state to mummy us because just by doing that, it it kind of I don't know, it just lends all this stuff to populism and the the idea that we're too stupid to regulate our lives, which may be largely true. But then address that, address the source of the problem. You know, you, you're sticking sticking a bandaid over a leak. Then it's it's like you're not really d- doing the job. And it's, and there's also yeah the principle. It's not really what the state is for. It does the state does protect us from ourselves, but by our consent. And it just seems very weird that the state is now it it's it sort of it exceeds its mandate by doing that. It's like it thinks it knows what's best. It's like but we the state is a reflection of the people. Ideally, right. I mean, well, yeah, yeah that's, supposed to be, yeah, right? that's the libertarian argument perfectly yeah. articulated. But I suppose like you know one of the counterpoints. That and often people who are sort of less further down the libertarian spectrum would say, well, surely there's sort of these grey areas where it's like more regulation in certain places. First, they are strictly prohibition. So it's at first they're strictly let's restrict this certain uh, access to this or okay. uh, whatever else. And then over time it actually becomes public. Um, it becomes something that the public actually agrees with and it becomes something that um, is actually generally accepted as, yeah, this kind of... Yeah, I'm not yeah. blanket against these kinds of laws, but I, yeah, that's just my initial feeling. Like, yeah. Where it comes to intervention into yeah. prohibition. At least, at least that should be the benchmark of how politics operates. That should be like the ideal. That here's the principle that we're acting on. I was going to ask, um, so this kind of leads us to why do people drink in the first place? Right? So, I mean, why do you drink, Joe? Why do I drink? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Probably one I should have asked myself some years ago. Yeah. No, um, yeah, I think but- a large part of it is social. For me at uni, at least, it was obviously a way to kind of break down those sort of, that sort of awkwardness, and those kind of social barriers and get to meet people, I suppose. Yeah, it makes things a little bit more fluid, sure. Right, yeah. so... Um, Social lubricant. Is that's phrase, that's what I was going for. I was like, the phrase. Shit, something lube? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to just like try and say something that had the word lubricant in and just say something. Yeah, weird. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was meant to say. I think, like, I think my personally, my reasons for drinking have probably changed, like, over the years. I think, like, a lot of it was kind of to do with getting rid of stress. Like, when you're at uni, it's quite a stressful time because, believe it or not, when you do a degree, you have to do work sometimes. So I found. So it's kind of a flip side to that. Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> and because you're young and your body can kind of take it, you're just like, and it, it is sort of the culture, right? You've got an SU, you've got happy hour. It's almost encouraged in a sort of implicit way. Mm. Whereas now, like, I never drink in the week, really, ever. Um, it is ultimately, it comes down simply to just, like, it does feel good. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a good feeling. It feels good to be like, be able to chat a bit more freely you know everything just feels nice simple as that really the problem inherently with drinking is that as you drink more you sort of lose sense of way where you're at yeah like you can't work out how drunk you are and then you think well i've got to kind of catch up a little bit have a bit more yeah well it's yeah it's it's very difficult to get moderation that's part of the reason why i think it's actually quite uh admirable task because when when you find someone that can drink perfectly they don't they don't come along very often but you know they can just be like they know when to say no they know when to catch up they'll always leave 
at a sensible time. If anything stupid ever happens, they're never involved with it because they're always in the right place at the right time. People who can navigate the drinking world, they're just like, you're a showcase of the virtue of temperance. That's one of the reasons why I have this like sweet spot idea. Even though I'll be the first to admit I don't go into it myself. That's yeah. but that's my idea anyway. No, Rather than just going cold turkey and just being like, it's it's like some weird religious idea. That's, that's a massive over-exaggeration. Anyway. But I feel like some people who don't drink have that in mind original sin yeah <laughs> no i think for me like i do like have an addictive personality i think to some extent i think you definitely do <laughs> yeah i don't think like i think it's fair to say that i don't drink as heavily anymore than i used to like i don't really get blackout drunk but you're also like, like really safe hands when you do get really drunk yeah if you don't go mental i think you just like really but this chill the thing, out. i'll be the first to admit that like yeah. i often just don't really i kind of i do know when to stop but i don't necessarily care when i get to that point yeah I'm always dancing on the edge of like, I know I shouldn't have another one, but I'm just going in because I'm having a good time and I don't really want the night to end. I, I like to think it's never got to a really problematic stage, but I definitely used to be a heavy drinker. Like there's no doubt about that. Um, and I think like my personality is quite, I just kind of want to always push it to the next level a bit and I don't necessarily realise yeah. it might not be appropriate. Um, yeah. But I like to think I've calmed down a bit now. But yeah, to give you your, your kind of long-winded answer to your question about like why do I yeah. drink, I think it's, it does ultimately for me a lot of times come down to it just does feel good yeah and it's just a feel good thing to do i think you right i mean i, I had some like generic prepared stuff and i think you just hit the nail on the head on all of it the only thing i i that you probably didn't mention it i think there's a sense of like adventure in drinking a lot of people that are bored drink a lot bored with life because it's an escapism thing yeah um because it, it's sort of edgy isn't it we sort of go oh he's kind of cool he takes risks he you know, it, it's this sense of adventure because it is like a little adventure going on a night out. I went, I went out with you, didn't I, the other night, Elliot? And like, yeah. that's the first time I've been that place in in years. And it's, I don't normally go to clubs or anything. Is I get beer fear now when I drink properly badly. If you don't know what beer fear is, it's just like horrible gripping anxiety. <laughs> um, especially when I go to sleep that night and wake up the next morning. The next morning, hangovers now are just like characterized by beer fear. It's dreadful. No, this place was really cool. And uh, it is just like a little adventure because I was kind of going to this place and meeting this person I haven't seen in a while. And, oh, go just drop into this place. Oh, he, he, oh there he is, the, the the guy in the corner. Different people just appearing out of different stages of my life. Like, oh, old uni friend, old work friend. Yeah, it's just like a little, like a little fucking Lord of the Rings quest, <laughs> but really sad. So is that sort of encapsulated why you drink as well, Connor? Is that no, I don't. your question. Or? Well, I like to think at least that I do have other ways of filling that gap, that need for adventure. Is it more in line with what Joe's answer in the sense of how he drinks for the social reason and that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, well, obviously there's this romanticisation of the pub, all, all the language that goes with it as well. I like being in a pub and hearing people say, like, hey, one for yourself. When a glass gets smashed, everyone goes, way! <laughs> you know, there's usually a dog, there's usually someone on the fruity. Um, I'm not really painting a good picture here. But, you know, all, all the, the the sort of the 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 language and, the, you know, the time at the bar kind of thing, it's, I, I like that. Um Problem with I have so the saying about the open mics, anxiety I think is is a large part of it. Forming coherent fucking sentences as well. I feel like I do it better. It steadies your hand. Yeah, it does. Um, only only for the first two, like the Mitchell and Webb thing. Uh, after that, it's probably just me thinking that I'm speaking a lot it's more. Just clearer. additional brain delay with each <laughs> successive yeah. beer. Um, but I, because I think I think part of it is uh, attention deficit disorder, but a part of it is also psychosomatic. A lot of like, my 
terrible cadence when I'm speaking and a lot of uh, confidence issues. Um, so I think just having that one beer takes away a lot of those psychosomatic barriers that, that are there. So it actually has the opposite effect to what alcohol should do, really. Should, it should slow your cognition, but it actually speeds mine up for the first two. Then it goes... Do you not think that maybe just your perception of your cognition becomes more smooth? Well, um, So you become the greatest orator of all time when you're in it two beers in. No, that's, that's certainly true after a lot, but I think after a couple, it, it, there is an actual improvement, and it's, it's the kind of thing... Um, oh, well, you're not, you're not going to answer, Sam. Should I answer him on the podcast, then? Yeah, get him on the... Hello, Sam. You are currently on the two beers till, until Frenice's podcast. All right, what it's is like it? One of those really good quiz shows where you win a Christmas hamper from Harp. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what what are you calling for? Why is his name Sam Pedagog Lusted? Because he's a pedagog, he's a teacher, oh, isn't I was he? Just, I was, yeah, I was seeing when we were uh, going there, I don't know if you guys were getting there for seven or if we were just like, like getting there for half past and meeting there. Yeah, what are we doing, Connor? What time is it? It is 25 past I, six. I tried, I tried uh, texting Connor Bevan's fucking communication expert, but uh, I got completely aired. Yeah, sorry, we're we're in a podcast right now. That's why we're all not like. <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's like one of those fucking stasis spheres, like time and space stops. And it's like we're in a pot. It's like a wormhole. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, when are, when are we leaving for the Christmas meal? Oh, in, in a bit. Just just come, in just come bit. in. Yeah, just come to the his I, house um, and all. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't worry. That's fine. If we're leaving in in a bit, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot, how do you want to die? Is it doing this podcast? <laughs> no, I'm right getting now? messages off the staff at work because I can't find the PA. I'm just like, can you leave me alone? I'm doing a podcast. Make me want a beer. <laughs> yeah, quick, I mean, quickly, yeah, let's wrap up. How, why did you, why do you drink? Why do I drink? Well, I've worked in like the pub trade since I was 17. So like even before I was actually even allowed to drink, I was sort of working in a nightclub with like 50 year old dickheads just running about and being gillies and it was just sort of what people did on the weekend i don't know and you know eventually like because i skate and bmx and all that stuff so i'll go to a skate park so i've almost got that other place i can go to but a lot of people now go to the pub and it's where you where you hang out with people you know like after school you go to a park and sit and do sweet fuck all for hours on end and it's kind of the same in a pub Maybe you need to open it's, a pub uh, that has a skate park in I know, mate. Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's just one of those things. You go and it's it's something to do, something to sort of take your mind off life in general, I guess. Yeah, yeah. escapism. Kind of Both a half pipe and a real pipe serving beer. Yeah. yeah. Cheers, everyone. Have a drink Cheers. on us. But not too many. <laughs> Strictly two beers. One beer. Two, two beers. beers. Yes. Until Francis. <laughs>